Amen. Thank you, Dora. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm the lead pastor here at Zao. Uh, I'm so excited because it is Easter and Christ has risen. I love it. I love it. I grew up a little bit, um, just for a a touch, in a more liturgical tradition that had more of that call and response, but it wasn't until I was in the streets chanting that I realized how cool it is and how much um, street chants and protests and call and response are this kind of communal prayer, this shouting, this proclamation of true things. Christ is risen. And when we shout that in the streets, it's a revolutionary act. Hope is revolutionary. Proclaiming the truth is revolutionary. Easter is revolutionary. And we've been on this journey. Taylor mentioned this Zao Lives series, talking about life breaking in through death, light in the darkness, all of these ways that hope prevails, that life and love win out over oppression and death and systems of evil. And so today, we celebrate, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection, but this is the one, the big one, each year where we say, let us dissect it, let us dive into it. We've spent a week, those of you who were with us last week, know that we were with Jesus on Palm Sunday, protest Sunday. He was coming into Jerusalem, coming head to head with the Roman Empire. We journey through the week with Jesus as he's in Jerusalem teaching, And a few of us gathered on Thursday night to do foot washing and communion to remember the way that Jesus spent his last night with his disciples. And then on Friday, we walk with Jesus to the cross, to crucifixion. And so much has happened this week. So much of the stories that we tell about Jesus and the sermons that we preach of Jesus, the teachings that we pull out happen in this last big week, this huge confrontation with Rome that takes place in Jerusalem. And so I want to walk with you one more time through pieces of that story. And we're actually going to back up a little bit because I know not everybody can make it out to those Good Friday services. So I want to walk with you through some of the things that, that came up for me this week during Good Friday in particular. We're going to experience the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus from three very different perspectives as told in the Gospel of John. There are four books in the Bible that tell um, the life teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This whole series we've been spending in John and John's particular focus. Each of them tells the story differently and has a different emphasis on things. John really likes the word life, which is zao, um, to live, to breathe, to be among the living, not lifeless, not dead. That is John's shtick, light and life. And so he talks about that a lot. And we've been in this Zao Live series, really honing in on that word Zao, live. And so um, in John, we have a couple of different people experiencing things really differently. So I want to talk to you about the death and resurrection of Jesus from the perspective of Pontius Pilate who represents this kind of middle management in the empire, bought into the empire, but swayed by the teachings of Jesus. Peter, who is a faithful but troubled disciple, and Mary Magdalene, who is, of course, the center of this reading today. So middle management pilot. Um, We talked a lot about middle management last week, these people who are kind of caught in the system. This is not Caesar, although Pilate gets close. He's a Roman governor. 
And he is bought into this system of evil and oppression, this domination system it's sometimes called, these structures and institutions of oppression that keep things the way they are. Middle management is very bought into the status quo. It benefits them tremendously. It does not benefit them as much as resurrection and life would, but it is very difficult to see that when you're living in opulence. And so, Pilate, like all of these middle managers, is bought into the way things are and doesn't want anything to be disrupted. Just like the high priest and the the council of religious leaders that had been appointed by Rome, co-opted by Rome in the Jewish system at that moment in history, um, there is this threat, right? This threat of this uprising, this Jesus who has been stirring up peasants and stirring up rebellion out in the countryside and is now coming to Jerusalem, the seat of power, to, to come head to head. Like, this isn't really good for those people who are just trying to keep things chill, who are just trying to get their meager um, you know, take from this system and structure of evil that takes and takes and takes from everybody but gives a little cut to the middle management class. So Pontius Pilate is caught up in this system, and he's doing very well. You could even say he's management management. He's no, he's no Caesar, but he's, he's doing very well for himself. And so like everyone else, Pilate's trying to watch his own back. He's trying to save his own skin. And so when the, when the chief priest and, uh, and the council comes to Pilate and says, hey, take this Jesus off our hands. You have to kill him. We uh, want him dead, but we don't have any laws that allow us to do that. So you need to take him and crucify him. Pilate says like, whoa, <laughs> this is not my deal. I'm not Jewish. I have no idea. Like, why are you dragging me into this? And, and the, the people say, hey, you know what? You, you have to do this. This person is a criminal. We wouldn't have brought him to you if he wasn't a criminal. Take him off our hands. So Pilate takes Jesus, and he's like, yo, Jesus, what's your deal? Like, what's happening? Why is everyone mad at you? And Jesus um, talks and says, you know, I'm, I came into the, into the world to testify to the truth. And the scripture gets really fun and weird at this moment because after Jesus says, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Pilate asks, what is truth? And all of a sudden, we cut to the next scene. We cut to the next scene where Pilate is going out to the people um, and to the, the priests and saying, there, I, have, I find no case against this man. So we don't know what happened in that, uh, in that room. We don't know what response Jesus gave when Pilate asked, what is true? We don't know where Pilate's heart is at. We know that all of a sudden Pilate is even less interested in executing Jesus. And so I like to imagine the possibility that Pilate believes, that Pilate is swayed, that some part of Pilate understands what's at stake here, feels connected to Jesus, has heard some shred of truth, and has been changed by it. And so he says, I find no case against this man. Let me release him. And the priests are like, nah, no, no, you don't, you don't get to do that. The pilot says, hey, I get, like, I actually do get to do that. There's like a specific thing where because it's Passover, I get to release one of your prisoners. You want me to release this guy, this Jesus guy? Should I release Jesus? And they're like, no, anyone else, Barabbas. And so they say, hey, give us anyone else. We don't want Jesus to be released. And so Pilate is, is really trying here. He's like, okay, all right, you're mad, I get it. We'll flog him. 
We'll flog Jesus publicly. Okay, everybody, get it out of your system. I know you're mad. I know you're mad. And then afterwards, says like, okay, he's been flogged. You good? We good? And they're like, no, kill him. And, and Pilate is, is just kind of going a little, a little out of his mind at this point. And he's like, listen, there's nothing he didn't do. I flogged him. What do you, why do you want me to kill him? Come on. And, and they, these other middle managers basically like pull out their middle management card. And they say, if you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. And that was the charge against Jesus. Jesus, who had very publicly positioned himself as a true king, a true ruler, a true authority, in, in contrast to this false authority of the world and, and therefore the emperor of Caesar. And so these other middle managers are saying, hey, this is what we do, Pilate. We protect the system. It doesn't matter what you believe about this man. It doesn't matter if this man is innocent. If you want to be a friend of the empire, if you want to be a friend of the emperor, then you better kill this man now. So what does Pilate do? Does he throw down his allegiance with the empire? Come clean? Be a follower of Jesus? Renounce all of his privilege and power and join in the revolution? It would have been a much more exciting story. But no, Pilate doesn't have that in him. He's not ready yet. In one of the other gospel accounts, Matthew, it actually says that Pilate washes his hands in front of the crowd, trying to wash his hands of this death. I hate to break it to you, Pilate. You can wash your hands all you want, but you aren't clean of your, of your complicit actions in this system. So we have this person, this person who may be good, this person who maybe believes, this person who wants to do the right thing and is trying and trying, certainly trying harder than others. But Pilate in this story represents those corrupt institutions that are full of good people, that are full of people with best intentions, that are full of people who would do good if the system would only let them. Do we have any of those people, any of those institutions in our lives? Are we ever those people? Just doing what we're told, even though we know it's wrong. You can't actually wash your hands. And so Pilate chooses the ways of death because he cannot walk away from those systems and structures that uphold his own power. In the resurrection, there is no story of Pilate. There is no story of Jesus coming to Pilate and revealing himself. Perhaps Jesus does. Perhaps Jesus goes to Pilate just as Mary, but Pilate still can't see him, can't recognize. He's too bought in to death. That doesn't mean that God doesn't offer life to Pilate, only that Pilate is still too trapped to see it. And we are like this when we are too bought into the ways of the world. There is something that each of us benefits from in the status quo. It is different for each of us. Some of us have more and some of us have less, but we all have something that says, just keep it the way it is. And whenever we cling to that, 
Whenever we cling to that more than we step out in that promise of faith, in that promise of life, we are clinging to death and we can't see the life and light in front of us. We can't see the resurrection because we are stuck. We are stuck in our systems of death. So let's move on to Peter. He's a more fun character. Anybody know Peter, Jesus' pal? Peter is like this wonderful, schmucky person. He's the most relatable uh, disciple to any of us who are just like a little too extra sometimes. <laughs> Everything about Peter is super exaggerated. He has faith to move mountains one day, and he's totally lost the next. Anybody relate? <laughs> Peter. He jumped out of the boat, right? He walked on water for a second, and then bam, immediately sank. Thursday of this week with Maundy Thursday with the foot washing, we have this really, really amazing story. It's like peak Peter, where Jesus is like, hey, friends, I love you. I want to serve you. I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter's like, no, you are my Lord. I could never. And Jesus is like, Peter, chill. I'm like here to serve you. This is my, this is my intention. Like, go with me here. And Peter's like, oh, well then, Lord, all of me, head to toe, wash my entire body. And Jesus has to be like, Peter, you've showered today. It's fine. <laughs> Just let me wash your feet. And if you think I am exaggerating, please go read the gospel text. I, I, it is like that. <laughs> so Peter is this wonderful and wild character. And and so Peter just does this back and forth thing, right? One foot in death, one foot in life. Jesus knows that Peter is going to deny him, even tells Peter. And Peter's like, no. Do we have the, I skipped, I skipped the hand washing. I'm like not used to my own visuals yet. But um, here we go, yeah. Jesus, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter, never. Also Peter. Who, him? Also Peter, never met him. Also Peter, did you say shmesus? This is Peter. <laughs> this is Peter. This is the one who is all in and loses it every five minutes. And so Peter, Peter who, who believes in life, believes in Jesus, believes in resurrection, and also believes in death and falls hopeless and loses his way all of the time, Peter experiences the death of Jesus as this mishmash of intimacy and joy and beauty um, in, the, in the final week, this meal with Jesus, the washing of the feet, and also this betrayal, his betrayal of the one that he loves. This is someone who left his job, left his profession, left his community to follow Jesus into, into the countryside, and still, when the chips are down, he can't truly believe that God has his back. He can't truly believe that Jesus is the one. And so when he has asked, do you know this Jesus? He says, no. And so in this story, when we arrive at this part of the John text, Mary goes to the tomb and realizes that the stone, this big stone, this huge boulder that like not any one person could have moved has been rolled away. And so she's like, oh, I'm going to need backup. So she goes and she gets Peter and another disciple and, bring, and brings them. And so when the tomb is rolled away and Peter arrives to see this, they come and they freak out, Peter and the other disciple. It says they believed, but it also says in the same sentence, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. 
So I'm not really sure what the text means when they say he be they believed. Does it mean they believed that he had been stolen, the body? Does it mean they believed in the resurrection but did not understand it yet? But it would be very Peter to both believe and disbelieve at once. It would be very Peter to hope and to long for it and also to be still too afraid to be fully bought in to the resurrection, to life, to be too afraid to say he is alive while holding that hope, holding it in his chest. And so they return to their homes. And we find out later that they've actually locked themselves up, barricaded the doors, that Jesus has to come in through those locked doors miraculously to find them because the fear has overwhelmed them in that moment. Now their time will come. Their time of seeing Jesus, the resurrected, will come. But in the morning of the resurrection, they are still afraid and in hiding. We are like Peter. We are like Peter when we go back and forth, when we have one foot in death and one foot in life. We can see it and we can't. We can hold it for a moment and then we lose it. The resurrection is real and waiting for us the moment we trust and believe. And it will continue to be there for us while we doubt until we can pick it up again. Perhaps Peter did believe for a moment in the empty tomb and then lost it and retreated back to his home behind locked doors. But he will believe again and it will still be true the whole time. It will still be true, still be there for him the minute he can see it. And finally, we have Mary Magdalene. Oh, Mary Magdalene. In all of these gospel stories, there are a lot of women at the foot of the cross. We can have that image. These women who are described as being the ones who supported Jesus. Women who didn't get to be written about a lot. But there they are at the foot of the cross, experiencing this grief in a completely different way. The men who followed Jesus were in hiding out of fear. But the women who followed him were there at the foot of the cross, watching it all happen, being with Jesus as Jesus had been with them. And so Mary is one of these women. Mary, a Palestinian woman, a Palestinian Jew under Roman occupation, and these occupiers, the Romans, have executed her beloved in front of her eyes. Mary is a controversial figure in the Gospels and in history. There's one tradition of imagining her as a really wealthy woman, and it's this really beautiful, powerful um, figure. But all of the historical and biblical accounts we have of her is actually that she's very poor, that she has been unmarried, the Gospel of Luke says that she has seven demons in her. And we don't know what that means, but however we interpret it, it means that she would have been isolated, cast out. She would have been treated as a contagion. And so as she is not only navigating um, patriarchy and also the pain of occupation where people who had more rights, Roman citizens, and more weapons, Roman guards, could do anything they wanted at all times. Additionally, within her own community, she would have been outcast, considered contagious, considered too ill, too possessed, too demon, demonic um, to be a part of, of her own community. 
she was considered unclean and infectious. That is, until the man who loved her, the man who she loved, healed her. The man who saw her worth, who saw her place in a new kingdom, in a new life, in a world where death had been dismantled and offered it to her, offered this vision of a new kind of living, offered her life, and she took it. Here is a woman who has been to hell and back, and she has followed Jesus, her beloved, her savior, ever since. But the point at which we enter her story today is perhaps the lowest ever. The man she loves has been executed publicly on a cross. She watched him die. She watched her hope die in front of her. She has the most at stake here. She has the most to lose. She has watched people in power jeer at Jesus, mock him, call him names, as they mutilated his body and murdered him. And in her grief, she goes to the tomb. We can have the next. We don't know why she's at the tomb. Perhaps she wanted to anoint his body one last time. Perhaps she knows he's gone, but she wants to just be. Even if he's not in it, to spend one final moment with him. But he's not there. There are there, dressed in white, and she seems to take no notice at first. She's just weeping. They ask her why she's crying, and she despairs. They have taken away my Lord. She turns around to see another person there, a man, perhaps the gardener, and he asks her, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Desperate, she starts to plead with him. If you have him. If you have taken him from here, let me know where you have laid him. She is so blinded by grief and pain that she can't see him for who he is. And then something incredible happens, something beautiful and warm, something familiar but striking, reaching through the pain and hurt and tears. Jesus calls her name, Mary. Suddenly, Mary is awake to the presence of her beloved before her eyes. Perhaps he doesn't look the same. Maybe his voice has changed. All the gospel accounts make it sound like the risen Jesus is unrecognizable to even his closest friends, even to Mary Magdalene. But when he calls her by name, something wakes up inside of her, that hope again, because she had not succumbed all the way to death. She had some hope left alive within her. It wakes her up. Death has not won out after all. And she she cries, Rabuni, teacher. We don't know precisely what happens in the next moment between them as they experience this, this reuniting, this resurrection, because the resurrection has just happened in this moment for Mary. It has just become real and just become true. And so as Mary has her resurrection moment, as she hears her name, as she is transformed from death, from the death that she was experiencing, from the death of her own tears and her own grieving and her own loss, into life, into hope, into the the proclamation that he is risen, he is alive, and death will not win out. They are there together. Jesus tells her, 
do not hold on to me and commands her to go out to others to testify to the risen Christ. And so we have both this welcoming in and this sending out, this yes, I love you and I am here, and no, you cannot hold this moment forever. You must travel with it. It must propel you. It must send you out because you are the only one. Mary is the only one in the universe in this moment for whom Christ is truly risen. Mary is the first Mary is the first to see and the first to believe, and therefore Mary is called to be the first to proclaim, to shout in the streets, to testify. Because of Mary's lowly status, particularly her identity as a woman and an unmarried woman at that, testimony in courts in her day would have been out of the question. Her testimony was considered useless. And yet, God's ways are not the ways of the world, and the courts are fallen to the systems of death just like everything else. But Jesus, in bringing life and resurrection, shows us a new way, that her testimony is the most valuable, that the person that Jesus chooses to testify is that woman alone weeping in her loss, that woman that no one wants to trust, that woman who has been disregarded, that woman is the testifier of the truth of the risen Christ, that woman is the person who brings the truth of life into the world for anyone who will hear it. Whether or not the world is prepared to hear her, she knows what she has seen, and she tells the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She testifies, testifies to the risen Christ, to anyone, to everyone. She may not have been considered credible in her own context, but look at what her testimony has done. How many of us have heard the testimony of the risen Christ? Mary Magdalene told the world the truth of hope, life, and resurrection. <coughs> Mary Magdalene is us too at our best moments. Mary Magdalene is us when we are the most marginalized and the most aligned to truth. Mary Magdalene is the women who have seen the men they love criminalized, mocked, and murdered in the streets, who have wept over their beloved, asking where have they gone? Mary Magdalene had nothing to lose from this world that is so broken, and so of course she is the first to truly believe. Mary Magdalene testifies because she knows that her only hope, her true hope, is in the toppling of these systems of evil, of domination, of destruction. And so, she sees that the world of death that she is so well acquainted with is flawed, and actually that it is weak, that it does not have the final answer, but that life wins out in the resurrection, and life has won out just before her, as it has called her by name into newness, into hope. Mary can hear her name when the Lord calls to her, and Jesus chooses her to be his messenger, to proclaim hope and resurrection, to tell the world that the death that binds us has been broken, is broken, will be broken by the love and resurrection of Christ. Mary has nothing to lose and everything to gain from the upending of this earth of destruction into this earth of hope and love and joy. And Jesus goes to her first. Communities at the margins are like Mary. Communities of hope are like Mary. 
our best, Zhao is like Mary, at the margins, at the fringes, tossed out and disreputable, but changed by the love of God and made new. God has called us to testify to the church, to each other, and to the world. This is not a story only of our willingness to be made alive in Christ, but Jesus' choices of who Jesus comes to first, of where Jesus' gospel begins. It is not at the center. It is not at the halls of power. Jesus could have appeared first to Pilate or the emperor or the high priest. See, look, you were wrong the whole time. He could have gone straight to Peter, but he didn't. He hung with Mary. And together, between Jesus to the margins, and Mary's belief in hope and in life and resurrection, they together made this first testimony of the risen Lord. This testimony that so-called no one would listen to, and yet here we are. The world changed. The world learned of the resurrection of Christ, which has inspired so many rebellions, so many forms of resistance, so many inbreakings of life and love into the world. And so, We must know that in those moments that we are more like Pilate or more like Peter, who must we look to to hear the truth? We look to Mary Magdalene, the most oppressed among us, the most marginalized among us, because that is the person to whom God speaks first. That is the person who is ready to shed this system of domination and destruction. That is the person who knows before any of the rest of us that Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Alleluia. And so those parts of us that are the most rejected, most marginalized, they are the parts of us that will know first that that system that rejects them is false that the hope and life of resurrection is true and worth fighting for, worth believing in. And so, as we gather in those most marginalized pieces of ourselves and listen to their truth, that he is risen and that hope is here and hope is alive, we must do so in the world as well. We must stop looking to the pilots and the middle management and the Caesars to tell us what true hope is and what is possible. Because that is not where possibility shines. That is not where God breaks into the world. It is at the margins. It is with the weeping woman at the tomb. It is with the one who has been forgotten that Jesus comes through first. And she knows before anyone else the truth that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we thank you for your life which breaks through everything else. God, we pray that you would be with us in our moments of doubt, in our moments of trust. God, we pray that you would be with us in the halls of power and in the margins. God, we pray that you would draw us away from the center and towards the margins, towards those fringes where you show up, towards those pieces of ourselves that we would be taught to deny. God, we pray that your truth, your radical truth, your life, your risenness, would be made manifest in us, that our belief could carry us into hope in the face of death and destruction. God, we proclaim, you are alive. You are alive. Love is alive, and death cannot win. Amen. Amen. Uh, Would you stand with us, either in body or in spirit, as we uh, proclaim that Jesus, that forever Uh, He is glorified and that the power of hell